Hi, this is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations. And um, we, as always, have some very interesting and informative guests. Um, so I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, some of them are fun and some of them have just really important information to share. We've done about, I don't know, close to 3,000 interviews now over the years. And I think um, people tend to appreciate the, the information they're getting from us. So here goes for today. I am uh, thrilled that you were available to talk to me because um, needless to say, all of us in, in the United States of America were both floored and, um, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but at least 81 million of us <laughs> were um, very uh, grateful to you for uh, stepping up at a very critical moment. So we came out of um, the impeachment, of course, as we all know, with an acquittal. Um, and, and with a statement by Mitch McConnell that um, while he, he voted for acquittal, um, he clearly uh, saw that the um, former president was, was guilty, but that it was best resolved in the courts. Mm -hmm. and, and everybody kind of said, really? Well, you could have done it, you know, but, um, and, and now that's where you took it. But you took it in a way that I'm fascinated with, first of all, I want to understand why you in particular took it on, but secondly, the, the um, law that you um, identified as the source of your suit, uh, which goes back to the um, early civil rights days. And of course, we're in another round of civil rights days, aren't we? And, Absolutely. Uh, and, and so it was fascinating that you went back and found that as a basis for going forward. So I wanna know why you stepped forward um, in particular, and um, I want to know uh, what made you think of that law as the basis for your suit. Uh, those are, I think, the kind of the two most salient issues. Um, you know. Uh, well, uh, well, thank you for having me. And uh, I would say, on January sixth, uh, my main concern that morning was to be in the Capitol. Uh, during the joint session, uh, which is required by law that members of the House and Senate uh, would hear the call of the states with electoral votes, uh, that, that hearing per se would be conducted by the vice president. Uh, and so as a supporter, of Joe Biden, uh, who chaired the 2020 Democratic Convention, I did not want to miss any part of my candidate's confirmation as president. So I uh, went to the Capitol and because of the social distancing requirements, uh, I had to take a seat along with a number of other members of Congress in the gallery, which used to be the area reserved for the public right. to, to view yep. uh, the proceedings of, of Congress. Mm -hmm. So I'm seated in the gallery uh, and I'm looking at the beginning of the process. And all of a sudden, the vice president's security team rushes him away. Speaker Pelosi's security team 
rushes her away. You hear a lot of noise and a lot of members on the floor uh, were being rushed away. And we're still not quite sure what's going on, but obviously they have communications with the outside that those of us in the gallery did not have. And all of a sudden security came up to the gallery and started closing the doors. So they didn't say uh, everyone leave or they didn't say why. And so in the midst of the concern, they said, put on your tear gas uh, mask because uh, tear gas has been deployed in the Capitol. So mind you, we're still not sure what's going, what's going on. on. And by that time, staff and members of my family started calling and texting, want to know what's going on. Uh, well, I say I'm not sure, uh, but they say there's something happening in the Capitol. They said, well, we seeing it play out before our eyes that these, these Trump folk have uh, actually uh, broken into the capital of the United States. And so uh, we were there almost an hour uh, before security was able to move us out of the, the, the gallery area. But as we moved out, we saw uh, a number of people spread eagle on the floor uh, held at gunpoint by security. And that point was the moment it hit home that these people actually had gotten to the third floor of the United States Capitol. And as you know, as someone who visited the Capitol, you just can't just walk in the Capitol. Uh, that there are magnetometers, security at, at all doors, but there are only a few doors that you can access the Capitol by. Obviously, uh, all that was breached. First floor, second floor, third floor. Uh, you saw people later on that day who was in the speaker's office and all that. But we were moved to the Longworth House Office Building, the Ways and Means Room, and what that did, it put about 300 of us in a room probably designed uh, for 100. And ultimately, we're in the midst of a pandemic now. And there are some Republican members of Congress who, well, refuse, uh, who refuse to wear a mask. Right. And yeah. so I said, I'm not going to stay here much longer. And so... I left that floor and went up two floors above uh, this, called a couple of my colleagues and said, look, there are rooms up here uh, that don't have nearly as many people as down there. So they came up. Uh, the unfortunate thing is one of the people I called ended up testing positive the next day. Wow. Uh, and, and so it was uh, totally chaotic. Uh, but, you know, I blame Donald Trump for this. Of course. After he lost, uh, he encouraged people to come to Washington on 
January 6th, Six. that it was going to but be why. Mystery about why. They just have to look at the date. That's right. That was the day that the final confirmation and certification process was to take place for the election in November. And he told them, come to Washington. It's going to be wild. So uh, he then, through social media, uh, pushed out uh, all these false narratives, misinformation, that somehow the election was stolen. Uh, they filed some 60 lawsuits all over the country. And the majority of the judges who heard them were Trump-appointed judges who said the lawsuits had no merit. Right. You know, right. you just can't say uh, the election uh, was stolen from me without, without being able to provide the proof. Uh, and so they were not able. And the majority of those suits were filed in areas where there were a disproportionate number of minority voters. Right. Uh, so they went to Fulton County, Georgia. They went to Detroit, Michigan. They went to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, with all kind of crazy allegations of uh, voter fraud. Now, mind you, a majority of the election officials, even in those areas, mm -hmm. are Republican. Mm -hmm. And so... Who certified the elections. That's right. And, and so... That's, that's we've counted, we've recounted. And there's no fraud. If you have some evidence, provide the evidence. Well, well, I just know I couldn't have lost that election uh, because my people tell me we were in the lead. I can't tell you uh, in my lifetime how many elections I've known people to go in the election leading and come out losing the election. But that's that's the democratic process. Well, now you can challenge. Tell the whole story. That's right. That's right. And, and uh, uh, if you don't believe me, ask Hillary Clinton. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, I was a Clinton supporter. Uh, everybody uh, under the sun uh, thought uh, she was just the the first female president in the United States, but it didn't happen. But you know, in America, we are supposed to settle our differences at the ballot box. We're not uh, going to riot. Uh, we're not gonna have insurrections like other countries have, especially uh, those countries that are uh, emerging democracies, uh, shall we say. And, and, and because we're the gold standard, <laughs> you know, uh, for a long time, everybody uh, emanated, emulated, uh, wanting to be like Americans. You know, your democracy, uh, you don't uh, change leaderships. And if leadership is not what you want, you don't have a coup. Well, up until January 6th, that was in fact the case. But after January 6th, Donald Trump spoke to this group he had invited to Washington and said to them, go to the Capitol and let them know that you don't like what they are doing. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and don't let the process go forward. And, and those individuals took him at his word and they started marching uh, to Capitol Hill. Right. In that group, you had known domestic terrorist organizations like the Proud Boys, like the Oath Keepers, and just a whole mixture of uh, uh, people that are outside the norm. And, uh, and Benny, remind uh, my listeners that um, you're chair of Homeland Security, right? So that's why, because you know, people ask the question, "Why Benny? You know, why? Right, why right. Who, who brought the suit?" Well, um, I chair the House Homeland Security Committee. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that I have received information from the FBI and other uh, intelligence government agencies that domestic terrorism in the United States of America is on the rise and the greatest movement in that uh, direction is a right-wing extremist like the Proud Boys, like the Oath Keepers. Uh, and so uh, I was a little concerned because uh, they were in town and I know they have a propensity to advocate violence. Uh, but nonetheless, you're in town at the invitation of the president of the United States, the commander in chief, who has access to all this information, but he associates with people just like that. So uh, association brings on assimilation. And so in many instances, uh, he defended uh, many of those right-wing extremists, uh, like the Charlottesville uh, incident. Uh, he said uh, that there were good people on both sides. Well, the evidence I looked at said that's not true. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you also that I'll, I'll never forget, because I think I saw it live, because I've been following this from, from the beginning, the day at one of his rallies that he, he urged people in the audience to beat up a journalist who was there asking questions that he didn't like. That's I mean, literally, right. he said, go beat him up. And, I said, and oh. if, if, you, if you need a lawyer, I'll pay for one. Yeah. I mean, so, so this is the kind of uh, commander-in-chief uh, who for four years led this movement that culminated with the invasion of the United States Capitol. I was there, as I told you. And so I voted uh, for the articles of imp impeachment in the House. But I am still committed to our system of, of, of government, our democracy. Uh, the framers of the Constitution put the impeachment uh, provisions there just for uh, such a time as as we were in. Obviously, the conviction requirement is over in the Senate. Uh, I sat like a lot of Americans and watched uh, the House managers produce and argue, in my estimation, an airtight case for conviction. But we didn't get it because the law requires a two-thirds vote. Mm -hmm. 
of the body. And that was 67 votes. Uh, we didn't get it. Uh, but, you know, that was a political vote. That wasn't uh, a vote based on the merits or anything else. So after the, the lawsuit, after the, the, the Senate uh, did not vote to convict, I talked to Derek Johnson and lawyers with the NAACP, and we basically decided that we cannot allow this kind of activity to go forth in a democracy uh, because now uh, the standard is set that if you disagree with an election, all you have to do is just tear the place up. And, and so it's out of my love for country that uh, I filed this lawsuit. Uh, I'm convinced in America, like any other democracy, we should show, settle our differences at the ballot box. If there's a dispute about it, then we take it to court. Obviously, this insurrection did not want to address what the courts had already told them. So we looked at it, looked at the law, and we found uh, an 1871 Civil Rights Act, commonly referred to as the Ku Klux Klan Act, that after the Civil War, uh, elected Southerners who wanted to work uh, with the Northern uh, uh, part of this country after the Civil War, who said, look, we lost. We are now the United States of America, but because of the threats and intimidation, they will continue to receive. Congress passed this and said that any individual or organization that impedes a member of Congress, employee, staff, otherwise, from doing their constitutional responsibilities is violating the law. And we said, well, that, that has applicability to just what occurred, because as you know, when the insurrection occurred, the counting of the electoral college ballots stopped and people started running for their lives. And so it was only after uh, the National Guard, uh, the Virginia State Police, the Maryland State Police, and a number of other law enforcement agencies came to Capitol Hill and ultimately uh, secured the area to the point that around 9 p.m. that night, uh, we started to count back. And it was after 3 a.m. before we completed the process. But Speaker Pelosi and, and, Leader Schumer, and Majority Leader Schumer said that we cannot allow these folk to take over the United States Capitol if they are deemed successful, it sets the bad, a bad tone for who we are. So in the spirit of not letting these folks stop this uh, 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 counting, uh, and we need to make sure that these organizations operate within the boundaries of law. They are outside the boundaries of law. And if we are successful with our suit, because the punitive provisions can 
determine a value uh, for and above just the normal uh, conviction uh, and, and rates. Uh, we want to put these organizations out of business because uh, they demonstrated uh, that they don't want to play by the rules. Uh, and organizations that don't play by the rules should not have a legitimate role uh, in this democratic society. So, oh, go ahead. I, I have two. No, no. So, 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 if we go to court uh, in the District of Columbia, uh, present our case to a jury, we allow to do discovery. Uh, we'll find out what communications went on between the White House and and, and these extremist groups. Uh, uh, we'll look at what intelligence briefings uh, then President Donald Trump and his administration uh, received as to uh, who was coming and their likelihood to be violent uh, if provoked. And so we believe uh, with a jury uh, presented this body of evidence that we'll get a conviction. And that conviction uh, will help put these right-wing extremist organizations identified in this suit out of business. So actually you've answered one of my questions and, and, and actually, um, and, and that is uh, how does your suit not just in a sense punish crimes, but um, help shape the future, which we're all worried about because we're worried about these groups, not just what Donald Trump was and did, but these groups going forward. But I gotta ask you, because the thing that fascinates me still is that KKK Act. And <laughs> how did you all think of that and find it? Well, you know, uh, there are some smart people out here. Uh, Derek Johnson, who's the national president for the NAACP and a Tougaloo College graduate, uh, is a good friend of mine. And he and I had been talking about it. And then he put a group of lawyers together. Uh, and, and, you know, they came back and said, look, there's applicable law for conduct like this. You are a member of Congress. You were just doing your job. And these people tried to stop you from doing your job. That Ku Klux Klan Act fits this situation uh, like a kit glove. And, and, and so we are now... Uh, have filed the suit, uh, and we look forward to going uh, the regular route uh, that a suit like this takes. Uh, we have a judge that's been assigned. Uh, process. Uh, the judge is is in the District of Columbia, mm -hmm. uh, and and after all the the parties have been served, then we'll start the process. So. Discovery. Uh, uh, that's right. And, and you can only imagine that my phone has been ringing off the hook. I'll bet. Uh, good and bad. But the good is from people uh, who understand how fragile our democracy uh, became uh, after January 6th. But also people who are saying, here are some ideas that I think you ought to look at that would enhance the success of your lawsuit. Uh, other people 
wanted to offer uh, contributions uh, uh, to help pay for the suit. I said, well, the NAACP uh, is, is handling the lawsuit. If you want to do a contribution, uh, please put it there. I said, I'm just the plaintiff. Uh, and they agreed uh, that I was an ideal plaintiff uh, as a member of Congress, someone who understands uh, uh, the right wing element and other dangers we, we face on a daily basis. So that's that's kind of uh, how it all came together. Oh yeah, yeah, and and you know uh, I've had deans of law school and other things call and say that is phenomenal that uh, you found that statute and it is that's so. What I, that's what got me on the phone with you. I'm saying, wow, we're talking in 1871 law, but but the irony and the and the uh, I, I'm not sure what the right word is. The beauty of it is how relevant it is to a form of civil war that we are in today. It may not be Union and Confederate soldiers on the battlefront, but it's the next thing to it in terms of the divided population kind of shooting at each other yeah. Verbally and 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 then some because yes there is it, there was definitely violence involved in there and there could very well be going forward so well you know stop this from getting any worse is is I yeah. think one of, the, one of the ironies of uh, one of the many many phone calls uh, that I received after the filing of the suit is uh, people say well we're never going to get together if this suit is successful. I said, yes, we will. Oh no, this suit is going to divide us. And I said, do you think Donald Trump the last four years has united this country? You know, I'm convinced that Donald Trump uh, as president almost uh, became the puppet master for the right wing element in this country. That people somehow believe uh, that he could do no wrong. Uh, and every day he came out as president, he had to single out some individual organization to talk about. And, and now he singled out Mitch McConnell because Mitch McConnell basically just said what the law provides, that if you're not satisfied with uh, uh, a decision we make, then there's the courts where you can seek civil or criminal redress uh, in. And that's where we are. Uh, I'm not advocating to overthrow the government. I'm just convinced that our issue uh, merit the court review of it. And if we prevail, then this democracy will be stronger uh, because of that. I, I think that what you're doing is attempting to achieve a resolution beyond which we can move forward and unify, without which I don't know how we could do it, because we, were, we would still be mired in um, the myths, the, uh, the, uh, the, the unreal uh, portrayals of what happened, the lack of facts, all those things. 
um, a, 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 this court trial will re, will hopefully resolve that. And that's what I think you're trying to achieve. And, that's right. And the public will have access to information that otherwise uh, will be kept secret. Uh, we'll now have access to the telephonic communications between the Proud Boy individuals and the White House. Uh, we'll have uh, access to the White House visitors log. Uh, you know, we, we'll have in this discovery, uh, I'm told by the lawyers that the majority of what we will ask for uh, will be, have been provided at taxpayers' expense. So as if the president acting as president, and he was that until January 20th. So up until uh, this January 6th event, uh, he was spending public money. And so uh, uh, we think uh, we have legitimate argument to make. Now our house impeachment managers, I think did a masterful job at presenting it. But uh, a majority of the Republicans' mind was made up. And as you know, uh, uh, there's a saying that, why confuse me with facts when a mind's made up? That was a, a good analogy of, of what occurred uh, in the past impeachment proceedings. Because you could see with your very eyes what was happening. Those individuals who sat in the impeachment uh, proceedings who were senators, they had to be escorted out of the building uh, and basically run for their lives. But they still could not bring themselves uh, to vote against Donald Trump. He has successfully bullied and intimidated members of the United States Senate and House to the point that they can't vote for something, even though they see it, they know that it occurred only because of the potential retribution that he might rain on them uh, if that occurs. Well, I sure hope that um, one of the outcomes of the work that you're doing, and I know that it's going to be, it's going to be one of the big jobs of your life. And you've had a few big jobs through your life, uh, Benny, from from the beginning yeah. in in Mississippi uh, all the way through your political career. But this is going to be um, maybe one of the biggest. And um, I, I feel uh, certain that the work you're doing is going to. Um, have the results that you're trying to accomplish. And um, I think you have a lot of support out there. And I, I feel badly for some of the Republicans, um, Cassidy in my state and um, Kissinger and the trouble he's having with his family and his um, uh, party members and people who will censure people for acknowledging the truth is one of the most phenomenal things I've experienced in my entire career, political, I've been in politics and journalism and marketing and everything. I, I just can't remember any time when somebody was censured for, for 
um, uh, addressing and, and supporting the truth. I wish you um, all the luck in, in your pursuit. And I hope perhaps um, you've given me more time than, than we agreed to. And I deeply appreciate that. And I hope that um, as we go forward, there may be a couple touch points where I can um, snare well, you again to update me. Well, please reach out to me. Uh, well, Thank look, you. I've enjoyed it. You take care. You take care too. Be careful. And I wish you all the luck. All right. In pursuit. Thank you very much, Benny. The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air I can't stand the pressure much longer Somebody say a prayer Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Um, I am uh, speaking today um, with a woman who has multi-talents and, and multi-ways of expressing um, narratives that um, are important to her through the arts, but also through research and, um, and also, I guess, recounting experiences in her own life. Uh, if that's fair, um, Shana, uh, I am uh, um, thrilled to have Shana Griffin with me, who is um, both one of the leaders of the uh, Creative Response Network that has done such important work during COVID um, and also um, uh, representing her role um, with Antenna Gallery, which has been one of the most, I think, socially relevant um, art venues in the city. I think that's fair to say. The uh, uh, the, the show at the moment that I want to speak with her about is called Displaced, and it is at the Contemporary Arts Center. And it's a very intense experience to see it. And I'm highly recommending it, and that's why I have her with us today to talk about it. Um, clearly, for this exhibit is a, a, such a limited word for what this is, because there's so much research reflected in it. Tell me how you conjured the project in the first place, why it's so important to you, and then we'll get into um, basically the story it tells, the narratives it, it tells, and, and what it looks like. Sure, absolutely. Um, and Jean, thank you so much for inviting me to um, join you all um, today to speak about the work, um, Displacing Blackness, Cartographies of Violence, Extraction and Disposability. Before I dive in really quickly, I just wanted to do a quick introduction of myself, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So my name is Shana Griffin. I am a feminist activist, independent researcher, applied sociologist, artist, and mother. 
As you mentioned um, to the audience, I currently serve as the Interim Executive Director of Antenna, um, which is a multidisciplinary visual and literary arts organization here in the city. Antenna is entering its 16-year um, anniversary this year, um, which I'm excited to be leading the organization at this um, pivotal moment. I'm also the founder of Punctuate, which is a feminist research, art, and activist initiative based here in the city, um, foregrounding the embodied aesthetics and practices of Black feminist thought to address intersecting forms of everyday violence and subjectivity Black women, our families, and communities experience. Also, um, which is bringing me to this conversation today, I am also the creator of the Displace Project. Um, Displace is a um, multimedia and public history feminist project um, that chronicles the institutionalization of spatial residential segregation, discriminatory housing practices, and property-led development um, and the violence of displacement here in the city. I think what in terms of your oh go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say in terms of the question you asked specifically about how I um how I guess I would say this place came into existence. That's where we're going? Yeah. Yes. So I initially um conceptualized and created the project. Um 10 years ago, actually, um, as a timeline, um, as a one-page timeline examining the intersections of racial and reproductive violence in housing policies and neighborhood development here in the city. I was specifically um, researching the ways in which reproductive violence um, exists in different forms of social policies here in the U.S. Um, clearly, uh, with regards to sexual and reproductive health policies, also, with regards to um, public safety and corrections, welfare policies, climate and environmental policies, and housing and land use policies. And it was through my research that I saw several correlations um, between a violence, um, reproductive, different forms of reproductive violence, and how they exist in everyday life, and how it mirrors and is reinforced through our housing policies. Um, both on a federal, state, and local level. And so Displace as a feminist initiative has evolved into this one-page timeline, into this um, interactive visual timeline that's 16 pages, and also as this multimedia um, public history project that illustrates historical and contemporary forms of property-led development and the property value of white social identity through policies of disposability, divestment, slum clearance, urban renewal, and the privatization of public services. I think if I might, what I, I want to say to frame this for my listeners who may not be familiar with the, the, all of the details and you have really pulled together an incredible history of various initiatives, federal, state, local, all of which consistently whether intended or not, um, become vehicles for exactly the, 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 what you've been describing, this segregation and the um, really very destructive practices, um, inhumane practices in, in many ways. 
and what what's so fascinating is that all these different initiatives that have great titles from you know public housing and um, urban quote urban renewal which sounds like a good word and it turns out to have been an extremely destructive practice all these good intentions these programmatic good intentions seem to keep coming out of the same place in terms of their impact I, I'd like you to to speak to that and and as and I'm sure the experience of actually researching this and finding that happening over and over again must have been Oh, I, I would have to say really dispiriting in some ways that it just keeps coming out in the same place. And thanks for asking such um, the question, um, the way you phrased it and um, thinking both about these various intersections and also how they continue to repeat themselves, like where we're reproducing um, the same forms of violence in different ways. One of the things that I um, drew my studio time at the Contemporary Arts Center um, with the showcase that's currently on exhibition at the CAC, um, the goal was to utilize, use the displays project current research as source material. Um, using this work as source, source, sorry, source material to explore the different ways in which ge the geographies of black displacement, dislocation and containment has existed in the city. Um, again, starting with the formation of the city itself um, as a, a colonial project and a carceral state um, to the ways in which we have controlled and regulated the movement of enslaved people here in the city, um, the conquest and removal of indigenous land. I'm sure I should say the conquest, removal and extermination of indigenous people for their lands here in the city to policies um, and city ordinances that was used to regulate the movement um, and proximity of enslaved persons to white people um, through our laws, um, coupled with um, racial covenants and deed restrictions and leading up to the 1930s housing policies that many of us are familiar with, whether that's through slum, slum clearance, um, urban renewal, um, the homeowners, loan corporations, residential security maps, or what we commonly refer to as redlining maps, to the Federal Housing Administration's underwriting handbook, um, to our public housing policies, up into currently our housing crisis that we're witnessing today, whether we're talking about evictions or the displacement or the lack of affordability in a city, and of various ways in which we are constantly reminded of the racial wealth gap that exists between, um, you know, among homeowners of different races and how um, blackness is rooted at the bottom with um, very minimal um, racial um, wealth that exists through homeownership opportunities because many folks was denied such because of the ways in which um, whiteness um, as a construct became a form of property tied to citizenship and opportunity codified in our laws and enshrined in the reality that we um, are faced with daily in terms of the extreme racial wealth divide that exists in the US. So uh, one thing that I've, um, I've seen uh, in our media uh, recently, uh, there's been a focus on the fact that living in a certain neighborhood can 
um, determine education, health, income, future development of individuals. Um, it, it, it's, there's a direct correlation. It's not um, a maybe correlation, it's a direct correlation. And again, your research documents this. Now, I think what's also um, something I want to help our, our audience understand because this is both, again, a research project that you did as well as an art project. And um, seeing it as art may not be the, the easiest thing for some folks who expect to walk into a space and look at colorful paintings, let's say, or sculptures. Um, when you walk into your exhibit, you are confronted with a very powerful visual images, but they are based on history and information more so than abstract um, images. So tell me about how you think about doing this kind of work in the context of art. Yes, that's, um, thank you, Jean, um, uh, for reflecting on um, the showcase um, and what um, your listeners are likely to experience um, in many different ways. Um, so I think one thing that's really important is for me and, you know, in my work, both as a researcher and an artist, um, and an activist is to think deeply of how to engage different audiences, um, engage different communities through different mediums. And, you know, thinking deeply about how can I use art um, to further my research or how do I use my research to advance activist-based work? Um, and what is the role of art in liber think about what is the role of art in liberatory movements? Um, and not to um, and, and, and as a strategy of engagement, as a form of intervention, I think is really key. And so when, with the work Displacing Blackness, um, Cartographies of Violence, Extraction and Disposability, I engage historical research in policies of divestment um, and slum clearance and housing discrimination and tenant right laws. Um, you know, engaging this research um, through like historical maps and ephemeral or found objects and also original artwork, as well as personal narratives um, and stories of resistance to really truly center um, ways of chronicling this history while at the same time creating space for engaged conversations. Not to offer necessarily solutions um, or a pathway forward, although some of that is implied, um, but it's more or less to sit with the questions of how do we not allow, um, you know, carceral um, and colonial imaginaries to be reproduced when we think about housing policies um, and land use planning here in the city. And so from abstract work depicting the violent screams of bondage and disposition, the recreation of a federal housing office where policymakers created urban investment um, and mortgage underwriting, un mortgage underwriting policies to those personal narratives of displacement, to moving from the macro to the micro, um, not just speaking in the abstract um, 
are thinking about what occurs on a national level, but also to reflect what has it looked like or how does it manifest on the ground. And so using both the personal narratives as well as movements of refusal, um, specifically with regards to Black women organizing in public housing, um, the goal is to think, uh, is to engage, um, yeah, to engage the general public of how displacement takes place and takes shape in Black life here in the city and how displacement becomes everyday sites of violence and subjectivity. So um, I think that of the many exhibits, uh, and it's very interesting how one experiences um, your exhibition because you come into it really not exactly knowing what to expect. And um, much of what you see is quite shocking, really. And it draws you in and you, and you go through one uh, part of the exhibition, which is structured in one way, and then you move into another and then another and another. And again, you have this sense that I was describing initially as the, this continued um, reinterpretation of the same um, uh, process of, of really denigrating and, and, um, and depriving a people of um, the opportunity to have a life equal to um, other races. So the, the part of your exhibit that grabbed me and really pulled me in was the timeline of the number of different residences that you experienced growing up and that your mother experienced um, as developments of one kind or another wiped out your homes or um, and, and other reasons that you were having to move. Uh, would you describe that to me, your experience with that personally, because that had to be in a sense of foundation for why this history is so important to you. Um, yes, absolutely. So there's two parts to this question. And thank you, Jean. I really appreciate this question because it's, um, it's very personal to me. Um, first is um, thinking about the Displaced Project and the timeline that currently exists um, in the lectures I've done in a walking tour um, and using the studio residency at the CAC, use it as an opportunity to really conceptualize and think through what an exhibition of this work can possibly look like. So each wall at the CAC, and I believe with the construction of two walls that I had made, I think there's at least 14, uh, 16 sites of engagement. And so thinking deeply about how, like how was I using my source material as an opportunity to think deeply about um, how to convey the heaviness and the complexities and the weight of displacement um, through different mediums. And so thinking deeply about, and it, you know, seeing it as an exploration of how to engage. And so thinking deeply about um, the abstract art um, and the violent screens of, um, of bondage is one piece. And then thinking deeply also about maps and cartographies of violence with the creation of the city and the force, uh, I'm sorry, the violent formation of the city through unfree labor of enslaved people, um, coupled with the current 
ways in which policies exist in our society um, to dispose of black people and other people of color who no longer have the same social value um, that they once had um, during slavery. And then thinking deeply about how these policies become codified into law and thinking deeply about federal housing policies, whether that's the Federal Housing Administration or the Homeowners Loan Corporation or the U.S. Housing Authority, thinking about these three different agencies into one agencies and what one agency or one office space and what would that look like? And so recreating a housing, a federal housing office site uh, and juxtaposing that with history of public housing and how, um, you know, certain residents here in the city was denied opportunities to purchase homes, yet those who owned their home, um, depending on what neighborhood they lived in, um, their homes was destroyed to make way for the construction of public housing. And then some of these residents found themselves being rehoused in the very development that displaced them initially and thinking deeply about what that can look like. And then from that, um, thinking about my mother's own personal experiences of displacement here in the city, um, you know, speaking to your direct question um, in terms of my experience, but it's more or less I I used 15 images of sites where she once lived here in the city um, starting in 1959. When my mother, whose name is Irene um, B. Griffin, uh, Irene Bro Griffin, um, she moved to the city in, um, permanently in 1959. Um, she's originally from Donaldsonville, Louisiana, uh, which is about 45, 50 minutes outside the city. Um, and I trace her um, displacement geography in the city, starting in 1959. And then in 1961, she was forced to move, and again in 63, and then again in 66, and 67, and 68, and then 69, um, to the point where many of the neighborhoods and the homes that are documented um, most of the neighborhoods no longer exist, and many of the homes that she lived in um, no longer exist. They're either vacant lots. Um, some of them are um, houses on the site that she, you know, formerly uh, uh, resided in. And the places where she resided the most, the longest, um, are two public housing developments, both of whom have been um, torn down. Um, but the buildings that she lived in, those buildings no longer exist. And, you know, as a young woman and also then as a young mother, uh, a married woman with children, finding herself constantly being displaced across the city, um, starting in the 1960s with the uh, demolition um, of Lower Miss City, the first time uh, for the expansion of the medical corridor, and then been displaced out of that neighborhood to the Treme community during a time in which the interstate highway um, construction was underway. And from Treme being displaced to the Lower Nine War, then to the Upper Nine War, and then from the Upper Nine War all the way to Holly Grove. And then from Holly Grove, she was able to find some housing stability and a desired public housing development. 
um, for at least five years. And then from there, she moved to the Arborville Public Housing Development um, by 1974, uh, where she resided for 25 years before purchasing a home in the Lower Ninth Ward. I'm sorry, in the Upper Ninth Ward. Um, and despite the constant moves, um, the inability to find secure housing, she was able to do so in public housing, yet public housing history is one of opportunities and stability as well as one of destruction and surveillance um, and criminalization. And it's not until she you know, finally finds stability um, she ended up, along with many other Black women in public housing, advocating um, to transform their communities into ones of hope and not despair. And so part of the exhibition, I not only tell her story of displacement, um, but also telling the story of the activism um, and the advocacy um, that she and so many other Black women engaged in um, that I refer to as a movement. Theirs was a movement without marches. And this um, depict that history as well. And so for me, it was really important to think about how to share um, her story without putting her on display and really thinking deeply about how to um, bring my mother into the space with a respect and integrity, um, given that I gained this opportunity um, to create this work um, a month after she passed away in September. Jane, but she must have known that you were working on this. Let, let me do something here um, for a moment because what I'm going to be doing is um, doing two uh, interview segments with you because I can only have so much time within this show and I'm going to uh, keep going. But um, I'll remind everybody of the uh, time frame that this exhibition is up at the Contemporary Arts Center at 900 Camp Street. Um, and the hours, and 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 then um, we're going to uh, continue and talk into a second segment. But I just want to um, make sure that everybody knows um, uh, exactly where to go and and when to see the um, exhibition that we're talking about. Absolutely, thank you, Jean. Um, so first, the um, showcase exhibition is called "Displacing Blackness: Cartographies of Violence, Extraction, and Disposability." Um, this showcase builds off my current research of the Displaced Project. Um, the showcase includes a series of work um, created during the residency, um, examining geographies of Black displacement, dislocation, confinement, and disposability in land use planning, housing policies, and urban development, beginning with racial slavery and the violent formation of New Orleans as a colonial enterprise and carceral landscape. And so it's going to continue. The work is going to be on. Yes, I'm sorry. The work is going to be um, on exhibition at the CAC until April 25th. So I urge everybody to yep. see it. And Shana Griffin is the um, is the genius behind it. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Jean Nathan for Crosstown Conversations on WBOK. What people are talking about.